and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Emily Gow and I'm the Programme Officer here at Cumberland Lodge. If this is your first time joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work, as well as other pressing issues arising in society. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place in April on the topic of restoring public trust. And we discussed uh, the social cohesion implications of declining public trust in government, the media, and between communities, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. If this topic interests you, you can watch the webinar on demand via the read, watch, listen page of our website, um, or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. So um, the topic for today's webinar is fostering climate resilience. So we all know we need to make more sustainable choices if we are to mitigate climate change impacts. Um, but since many of the changes we have set in train are now irreversible, today we'll be asking how we can adapt in, in ways that both protect nature and protect, promote social cohesion. Recently um, at Cumberland Lodge, we ran a four-part conference to explore young people's perspectives on the future of our planet. Um, and we were joined uh, virtually by lots of young people who were really passionate about the planet. Um, but there was a strong sense of anxiety and concerning the future. So today we're going to focus on, on what we can do to minimise the, the suffering that comes from climate change and how we can address the unequal effects of, of climate change in the UK. So I'm delighted to welcome um, three guest panellists. Uh, so welcome to Alan Heeks, who is the director of Seeding Our Future, um, Harry Holmes, a campaigner for the UK Youth Climate Coalition, and Glenn Woodcock, who is uh, the founder of Exeter City Futures. Uh, sadly, Christian Gida, um, who's the manager of the London Climate Change Partnership, can no longer be with us, um, but she does send her apologies. So welcome to Harry, Glenn and Alan. Thanks for being with us. And throughout the webinar, we'd like to invite our audience to submit questions. And you can do that on the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom, um, or by commenting on our Facebook uh, live stream as well. We'll also be live tweeting, so it'd be great to hear your views and questions and you can, and you can tweet at Cumberland Lodge using the, using the hashtag dialogue debate as well. Um, so as usual, we're gonna start with a, a quick poll. Um, so the poll will appear on your screen in a second. And the question we're gonna be asking um, is, do you think the urgent uh, need to tackle the climate crisis collectively is bringing people together across the UK? So I'll hold on while, whilst uh, you answer and then we'll share the results. Okay, so fairly mixed bag there, actually. So to some extent, uh, it was 70%, 13 people are saying no, and 17% are saying yes. So maybe we'll get our panellists' views on that as, as we go along. Um, I'm going to begin by asking each of our panellists a question, and then we'll start to take the audience questions um, as, as we have the, the, the conversation. So Glenn, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Um, maybe you can tell us um, what you think the most pressing social challenges are caused um, by climate change and which groups in society are most vulnerable. Thanks for the question, Emily. It's, um, it's a deceptively simple question, I think, with, <laughs> um, with probably a number of aspects to the answer. I, <clears throat> first of all, I think I'd break it down by, by thinking about the difference in the difference between who will be affected by climate change um, versus who will be affected by our response, by our social response to climate change. And those two things um, could be quite separate because um, 
the, the challenge, the environmental um, and net zero challenge we face is, is really a, a challenge to the way we organise our lives, the way we organise supply chains, the way we, um, the way we live our lives. <clears throat> um, and so if we are really going to respond to, you know, reducing the, our impact on the, on the planet, um, we need to drastically change all of those things, which means, you know, the way we move around, the way we produce food, um, uh, the way we distribute housing, um, to name just a, a, you know, a few things. And all, in each one of those silos, if you like, um, we're going to have to make some quite drastic changes. And each of those changes will affect different aspects of society in different ways. Um, but separate from that, there's the question of, well, how will the climate of the UK change, for instance, and, and the, the, effects of those, the effects of that are likely to be distributed quite unevenly. Um, <clears throat> uh, the lowlands to highlands, so coastal communities will be likely hit by um, in, you know, increasing storm surges and, and flood damage um, uh, and, and, and riverside communities as well because of the, you know, um, what will happen in the UK, is happening in the UK, is, is drastic increases in, um, uh, in, in floods from rainwater. So those, those things, but also I think rural communities in general, just because of the changes in climate and the spread of diseases through um, agricultural monocultures, for instance, is going to be a real challenge to um, rural and farming communities. So, so uh, you can already see that's a pretty complicated um, set of set of questions, and uh, and in a lot of ways, it will be affected by the politics of how we respond to those things. So, for instance, <clears throat> um, in, in 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 the food that we eat. Um, you know, we could respond um, in a very positive way by uh, by increasing the amount of um, you know vegetables that we all produce in in our, you know, on our own land. Alternatively, we could take a much more technocratic response, which is more about, say, for instance, large scale hydroponics. Um, and those two things, those two, um, coming back to your initial question about. Uh, does this bring us together or pull us apart? Um, you know, you can see that one of those one of those policy directions could, you know, really draw communities together, and the other one would just be, um, a, a, you know, would be part of separating people even further from the processes around around food production, which is one of the most fundamental aspects of our lives. So, I mean, I'll probably stop there because I've, I think I've opened up a lot of questions. But um, uh, each one of those you could kind of explore in, in some detail, but um, hopefully you can see that it, it really is bound up in the, in the direction of the kind of the policy discourse that's overlaid over the top, how technocratic we are versus how, I guess, community oriented we are. Okay, yeah, thanks, Ben. I think that's a good start. And we'll come back to sort of transportation. Um, you mentioned briefly there, housing as well, um, as we go along. Um, Alan, I've got a question for you next, um, and that is, um, can you tell us a little bit about deep adaptation? I think that's important to, to talk about at the beginning, um, and its role in preparing for some of these challenges that, that Glenn has just highlighted. Yeah, deep adaptation is a, a different approach to responding to the climate crisis that I think is really worth people looking into. Uh, it originated about three years ago with a, a professor at University of Cumbria called Jem Bendel. Um, 
central things that he highlights are that the the bad news on the climate crisis has mostly been very much understated uh, because most of the institutions like the IPCC that report on it are inherently very conservative about the way they report. So the first point is that actually the outlook is a lot worse than we think. And I think the three years since 2018 has, have already sort of underlined that. Uh, secondly, um, he, he believes that most policymakers and probably most, most individuals have put more emphasis on mitigating climate impacts and not enough on adapting to them. And as you already pointed out, a lot of the changes that are underway are now, you know, frankly, either irreversible or only partly reversible at the very best. So even if, you know, the world got to zero emissions right now, climate change would continue to get worse for quite a few years ahead. And, and clearly things are not about to come to a shuddering halt on emissions today or, or in the next very few years. So by adaptation, what, what Jem is really talking about is, firstly, actually, he talks about coming to terms with the emotional impact of the climate crisis. Um, what he says, and I, I strongly believe this, is that a lot of people really can't cope with the sense of overwhelm, lack of control, uh, possibly guilt and sense of, you know, being involved or complicit in it. So his first point is that we actually have to face the emotional impact of the climate change and get ourselves out of denial before we can do anything constructive about it. And he, you know, if you look at the deepadaptation.info website, there are some very good resources to help people to do that. The kind of things that he means by adaptation would include sort of voluntary simplicity. So actually choosing to change our lifestyle so that we, we can cope with yeah, the sort of climate changes that Glenn was talking about, um, recognising that um, food security is likely to be a major impact of climate change in the UK and elsewhere within the next 10 years. So he, he believes that we're likely to see quite serious social disruption across the world due to climate change within those 10 years, and that food security and food supplies are likely to be one of the biggest issues. And so another major part of adaptation, which is one of the things I'm working on with my Seeding the Future project, is actually helping local communities to increase their own food security, you know, to grow more of their own food and to buy from local producers. And um, you know, the, the deep adaptation also extends in some of the other things that Glenn was talking about. So one of the, the, the clear things that it points towards is the importance of local communities being able to support each other when a climate change impact hits and when you need to share resources. So the strengthening of local communities is a fairly crucial element of deep adaptation. Do you have any examples of how um, you're preparing those communities? So, so yes, food um, is one of those uh, areas that we really need to, to think about. Um, yeah. if you can, can you share some examples about what? Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at um, the two websites, seedingourfuture.org.uk um, and Bridport Food Matters. So the, the town I live in, in Dorset, Bridport, we've actually set up a dedicated website about food security. So it's a one-stop shop. Um, we, and, and the key elements in that, one of them is about food access. So clearly food poverty is already a, a growing issue and is likely to get a lot worse due to climate change impact. So the website lists out all of the um, food poverty initiatives in this town with opening times, how to contact them. So that's the first point. The second one is about home growing. So we, we've got a, a scheme called um, um, ambassador allotments. 
So people who have allotments and are already doing something to respond to climate change, like you know, in, improved rainwater harvesting, um, improved drought resistance, um, changing crops, we're sharing that information, encouraging other people to grow more of their own food. Thirdly, we have a listing of local growers and suppliers of not only fruit and vegetables, but you know, meat, dairy, etc. So we're we're encouraging people to buy local, and we're actually showing them where and how they can do that. Yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll definitely check that out as well. Um, Harry, I'm, I'm conscious that we haven't brought you into the conversation. So um, welcome, Harry. And I wondered if um, you could start off um, by answering this question. And that's um, how much responsibility do you think lies with the young people to ensure um, that we're preparing um, for the, these changes that are ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really clear that climate change is basically causing intergenerational divisions in a certain way. So I think that's really important to know. And that's not strange. That's actually like a common thing across all our society compared to our parents and our grandparents. If you look at a cross section of people my age in their late teens, early 20s, we're in debt from education. Owning a home is a unicorn likelihood. Um, and we've been most impacted by the job losses from COVID. So climate change is another thing on top of that where we're kind of being mucked about a bit. Um, you see this a lot, which is that people say they're inspired by how on climate change young people are. And they say, well, it's all going to be fine because young people who are so passionate about this are going to come along um, and fix it. You know, I've heard this trope all the time as a youth climate activist. I think it's really important that we have to say it. this is coming from generations who have knowingly since the 1990s inflicted climate impacts on the rest of the world. And that's kind of a way of abdicating responsibility. Um, as they're doing with the jobs crisis, the housing crisis and other things. Uh, the important thing is ultimately like we can lay generational lines with this. We can say that responsibility shouldn't lie with the young generation to deal with these crises. Um, I think the big dividing line between climate impacts is actually wealth. And that's the really important thing to centre in these conversations. There's when you look at flood impacts in the UK, there's just as many working class pensioners who are dealing with the ramifications from climate impacts in a way that other people in their community are not dealing with at all. Um, ultimately, you have to understand that for the last sort of hundreds of years, the, the wealthy in the global north have inflicted climate change and other environmental crises on society, particularly the wider global majority. That sort of division of wealth is always going to be it. And ultimately, pushing the responsibility onto young people both ignores that um, and ignores the fact that it is it should be everyone who has the capacity to be engaged with this that should be uh, taking climate action. Thanks, Harry. So, so what is currently being done? Maybe, maybe Glenn, you can share a little bit about um, Exeter City Features and, and what, what's happening in Exeter um, to address some of these problems, but also support these more vulnerable communities. Um. <clears throat> Sure. <clears throat> um, but I, I wanted, first of all, just to um, uh, uh, back up the points that uh, both Alan and Harry made. Um, firstly, I think um, we need to tread more gently, um, all of us, uh, regardless of how wealthy we are. And that, so the voluntary simplicity concept, I think, is a really important one. Um, but also the point that Harry made around, around wealth, and actually it's deeply tied in with the 40 years of globalization we've just been through which has you know used the, the global south as a production engine for the global north 
um, to give us you know large amounts of stuff. Um, but that that shift in production away from our own local communities has caused a vast transfer of wealth, which means that you know our, the, the the wealth distribution in our society is now now disgracefully skewed. But it's not a decision really that any of us has, has made, other than to say that trade is good, globalization is good, um, and and I think that nobody really understood that that would lead us to be, or very few people understood that would lead us to be in the situation we're in today. So reversing that 40 years is a big, it's a tough thing to do. And I think we'll have to do other things in parallel. <clears throat> so having said that, um, so what what we're trying to do in Exeter, and, 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 and even when you focus on a small city like Exeter, you find that it's a complicated place with lots of constituents and different points of view. In fact, you know, it's 150,000 people with 150,000 different points of view about, about what to do. So creating um, a, a, a kind of a, pl a plan that's owned by everyone about what to do next is a very complicated thing. Um, and you can spend your whole time in dialogue, but of course we need to do things quite urgently as well. So the, so the kind of... The, um, the, the number one thing that we've been trying to do is to try to say, try to gather the levers of, of power that you might have as a, as a community at, at the street level, but also at the level of a city and say, what is it within our power that we can do? And sometimes dust them off because they might not have been used for a very long time. Um, at the same time as saying, well, if we were to use this, this is the level of change that we, can, we have within our own grasp um, and so therefore it's worth our while thinking about where we want to end up because one of the different one of the things that you have when you engage a large you know a whole population with what do you want the future to be like there's often a kind of a uh, the response is well I haven't we haven't got any influence over that have we so what's the point in even asking the question so the first thing that you have to do is try to is try to bring together the possibility of change and actual influence and power over that local power with the dialogue about where to get to and, and of course what that comes back to in our society although to a large extent um well there's the personal change you can you can make but then there's also where's the where's the money going to come from to change our transport infrastructure or to um or, or to kind of create a 15 minute neighborhood for instance <clears throat> so they're the things that we've been looking at is what it, what are the sources of influence and power and, and often that so that comes back to public expenditure um so public procurement money that is spent by the public sector in your local economy and how can that be spent in a different way to drive change and that goes everything that's everything from hospitals expenditure on food through to how um, homes england deploys grants for the building of houses and i think you need to look in around it every single one of those things and say how can we influence it in a, in a more in a more kind of locally owned way to create the kind of place we want to live in in the future because at the moment those things just happen often outside of the control of any kind of local place <clears throat> so that <clears throat> at a very high level that's what um what we're trying to do but of course again that breaks down into a lot of detail a lot of complexity and um and a lot of different points of view about the best way to go so you have to talk a lot keep talking but keep bringing it bringing it back to um are we let's try and create some kind of direction travel
Thanks, Ben. Sorry, I cut off that. Um, yeah, well, I wondered um, if, if we can have some, some examples of what's happening in the city, but maybe Harry and Alan have got some sort of ideas of like innovative ideas which are, uh, are happening and we need to do more of. Sorry, was that a question for me? Um, well, I, I'm conscious that I'm going back to you, but um, yeah, you maybe kick things off. Okay. Harry and Alan can, can help. Sure, yeah. So, spe so, specific, so specific examples um, are uh, we are... Um, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of housing expansion going on in Exeter. Um, typically, uh, if if you allow private sector developers to um, develop that housing, they'll take a twenty to thirty five percent return on equity from that housing development. What we are trying to do is work with um, work with Homes England and One Public Estate to create a locally owned fund so that the profits from any housing development would be recycled into the community rather than taken away by developers. Um, and that that recycling into the community can either lead to lo more lower cost housing, which addresses, goes some way to addressing Harry's point about availability of housing, but also into local green infrastructure. So um, one of the things we want to do is actually start to build car-free neighbourhoods. Um, but no developer particularly wants to build a car-free neighbourhood because to them that's a that's a kind of a signal to their marketplace that um, it might be of a lower cost. So it enables us to take more risk in the way that we build housing. So that's one example. And, and most many of the other examples have a similar kind of flavour. It's about trying to take control of the way money passes through a place. Harry and Alan, do you have anything to add or shall I move on to the next question? Yeah, I can add something quick. Um... I think one thing when we talk about of like adaptation, some of the most exciting ideas actually comes from a, an area people don't think about, which is actually the just transition for workers. I think actually also thinking about how we adapt um, existing industries and the ways people organise their work to a climate future is just as important a question for adaptation. Um, so there's lots of examples and histories of workers leading on these plans. There's the Lucas plan, obviously, in the 70s, when workers were talking about stopping to build arms and building wind power, which was very ahead of their time, as we can now see. But also we've got the Harland and Wharf shipyard in Belfast from last year and the work that's being done at the moment with North Sea oil workers to talk about what their transition looks like. And I think those are really important uh, examples for adaptation, because what you see in there is you see in the people who are going to be impacted by the brunt, who are the most vulnerable to the changes, actually leading and designing the way the adaptation takes place. So they're not just engaged as a stakeholder, they're at the centre of it. And I think that's a really important lesson for how we do adaptation across all areas of society. So it sounds like there's, oh, sorry, Alan, were you going to? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think um, what Glenn said very interesting. Uh, you know, we've got similar um, exercise going on on a smaller scale in Bridport, which is a town of 16,000. One of the things I'd like to highlight is, is that sharing resources within a community, I think, is going to become absolutely crucial. It's quite clear that, um, you know, a, a, an individual person living on their own has a substantially higher carbon footprint, however eco they are, compared to sharing. And, and I'd just like to highlight one of the other projects I've been quite heavily involved with for about 15 years is something called co-housing. So co-housing is a form of housing where you have your own front door, your own private living space, but you also have shared spaces. So instead of everybody having a spare bedroom, you have a couple of guest bedrooms that you can use when your family comes to visit. And um, I, I set up the first low impact um, co-housing neighborhood in North Dorset called the Threshold Center. 
and um, a, a larger scheme called Bridport co-housing is is now under construction. What what's significant here is that in a co-housing scheme, it's very easy to share food production. So you have a you know a, a collective market garden, and you only need a few people with skills who can get people without gardening skills to actually start growing their own food. Um, secondly, it's a much more efficient way of using transport. So you have some social activities on site, but you can share cars and pool cars. And, and thirdly, um, you would typically have um, something like a biomass district heating system. So again, if you share your heating system or your solar panels, it's more efficient than one household. Um, getting co-housing schemes off the ground is quite difficult, but where I think they're significant is that they show how a community can share resources. And I think within the next five or 10 years, getting everybody to do that, whatever kind of you know, housing they're living in at the moment is gonna become crucial. So giving them role models that I think is gonna be very important. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's such a brilliant idea. Um, Glenn, yeah. Um, I mean, just, uh, I think following on from um, uh, Alan and Harry's points, um, uh, also back to the voluntary simplicity thing because a lot of the i mean on the one hand there are the sort of the, the big picture things that are ch you know they're the, they're the drivers that change society like house building and road building stuff like that <clears throat> but then there's the how do we respond ourselves and and you, you call that kind of a personal resilience um and uh, unfortunately our education system or you know just the way it is i suppose our education system um is is much more geared up to preparing people to engage with this globalized economy. So there's much more focus on abstract skills, um, uh, um, you know, mathematical skills, analytical skills, which lead to, you know, um, taking part, you know, working for banks and accountancy firms, things like that, which now a lot of us do. Um, no, very little kind of positive, um, uh, uh, um, positivity within the education system given to practical skills um, <clears throat> so uh, crafts craftsmanship woodworking um, uh, uh, textiles uh, clothes making shoemaking the kinds of skills which are, are which we no longer value in this society but they are if they are done locally the kinds of skills which actually bring people together in in incredible ways but we tend to have to learn these things after we leave school. <clears throat> um, and, as we, and also, there's almost no focus now within our, um, our education system on uh, the other aspects of um, personal capability, which allow us to come together as communities, so by things like music. And that isn't classical music, it's more like kind of folk music, music people can partake in um, as opposed to be um, be receivers of, and I th I I would hope in the future we might get back to the, um, valuing the kinds of skills which actually allow us to create connections with other human beings and value those um, in in a different way. And of course, if we value those things and we practice them a lot, it actually means we're spending less time buying stuff and building stronger relationships within community. So, I mean, I, I know that sounds like a bit of a, uh, a Goldilocks point to make, but we are, we, our education system is now so far away from valuing these more practical and human aspects that would have been, you know, in Harry's point, valued by people like the arts and crafts movement, um, that I think that we must start to do something to address that. 
Thanks, Anna. I'm really glad you brought up education, actually. I think that's an important point. Um, on the note of education, do you, do you think that currently uh, when children are at school, are they learning enough about adapting to climate change or are they still too focused on, on mitigating um, climate change? Um, well, I'm, I'm, Harry and Alan might have different views, but I think we should, te we should teach children skills to be adaptable but not overly focus on like doom and gloom about climate change at very young ages because I think that has a really negative emotional impact but obviously Alan and Harry. Well the the, the thing I'd particularly like to pick up is Glenn's point about capabilities. Um, one of the other projects that Seeding Our Future has run is um, pilot projects in three disadvantaged communities in Brixton, inner city Nottingham and on Clydeside, helping quite deprived communities look at how they respond to climate change. And the first thing that was, was encouraging was that although you might think that those struggling communities are just about getting by day to day, that isn't the case. That the people in those communities are extremely concerned about climate change, recognise that they don't have all the information they need and they don't have all the skills. And, and one of the major things that we found, and this comes back to your point, Emily, about education, is that currently people actually don't have very good community skills. And I'm talking here about communication skills. Um, for example, the, these pilot uh, programs running during 2019, uh, soon after Brexit, and we had heated arguments between people on different sides of the Brexit divide. But what was striking was that they really didn't have the skills to express their point of view, if you like, in a way that wasn't inflammatory, to hear somebody else's point of view and to live with a difference of opinion. So what we did in, in our um, eight workshops with these communities was we actually started with basic skills about listening, hearing, recognising and living with differences and then figuring out what you do collectively. This is also back to Glenn's point. You know, if you've got a community, you're guaranteed to have a lot of different opinions and yet somehow you had to get a consensus within a community to move forward. And, and my impression is that those sorts of skills would be absolutely invaluable if they were being taught at both primary and secondary school level. And, and as far as I'm aware, they very rarely are. Thanks, Alan. How, sorry, Harry, just, I've just seen you've unmuted yourself. Go yeah, um, I'll just come in briefly on education. So I think, I think one thing about education that we always have to note is it's super complex because of this time lag element you've got to train the teachers and the students um i still remember when i was in high school in 2014 2015 um they were still teaching us about peak oil and the fact that we were going to run out of oil potentially and now we're having to fight fossil fuel companies to keep the oil in the ground and to say don't use it so there's a difficulty in like trying to specialize the education system down to make sure that it's adapted and it's mitigated in general, I think the thing I'm concerned about most is there is a lack of serious support for climate and just wider education for people's well-being um, across the education system. But there's a need to really get thinking about climate out of the geography silo and out of the physical sciences silo. Um, climate's going to impact about so much. But if you go to a university, it's so rare, for example, to actually give an opportunity to study economics, sociology, history, law, all these sort of wide ranging ideas with climate change and thinking about this big challenge it's going to be impacting across the next decades as at the centre of it. Um, so I think the support and funding for those things has to come so much more. I think the important thing to note is that education isn't necessarily the problem at the same time. We can't fall into the trap of 
assuming that the reason climate action or the reason society isn't prepared is because um, individuals haven't been educated enough or just don't know the right things. That's a crucial part of it, which is making sure that we have people who are able to cope and do things, um, but we can't fall into the individualised trap. I think that conversations around education often lead to. We need action today as well as climate education. Um, and we can't have an either or, which is sometimes quite common. Thanks, Harry. And um, I'm good. I've just looked at the question and answer at the bottom. So I've, I've seen a question from Stephen, um, which I think is a long one, but I'm going to just ask um, his questions at the end there. Um, so this is to, to all of you, um, so you can um, decide on which yourself who's going to answer. Um, so Stephen's question is, to what extent are you trying to bring a wider range of voices to the discussions on climate resilience and deep adaptation to address existing inequalities? Based on your experiences, how do you think we can better include, involve, empower those who have been traditionally marginalised or ignored in these discussions? Does anyone want to, to take that question? <laughs> I can go first, if that's okay. Thanks, Harry, yeah. Um, yeah. I think the important thing with that is how we centre a vision of adaptation that isn't just like how do vulnerable communities or people that are excluded from the adaptation conversation just cope with climate impacts and actually think how do we radically transform an area for the better. I really like the way the Out of the Woods Collective who are writers talk about climate change which is that for many people they already live in conditions of ordinary disaster and what we're trying to get is how do we cope in times of extraordinary disaster. Um, for me, I think the crucial thing we see again and again is that adaptation is often imposed and imposed in ways that are actually exclusionary or reinforce inequalities across the UK. We see this in flood recovery all the time where people get in traps where some in their community have insurance and some don't. If we just have like a engage all the stakeholders, treat everyone as equal in the adaptation planning conversation, we're never going to be actually seriously dealing with this problem of inclusion. It has to centre those who are the most vulnerable, which is predominantly the working class in both here and the global majority. Um, and I think once you actually centre the adaptation plan of the actual embedded community organisers across the UK, I think you begin to see a very different vision of adaptation, one that's so much more ambitious than sometimes a lot of the plans that are quite technocratically imposed. Yeah, I, I think um, Harry's point about a positive vision is absolutely crucial. It's one of the things that Jem emphasises. It's easy to think that climate change is all about loss. There's actually a lot of potential gain you know, in terms of recovering face-to-face -face communities that are localised, where they know each other and, and where support is as much as sort of emotional support as a material support. So I, I agree with him about the positive vision. I think the issue about including all the voices is, is really difficult. Uh, I mean, I've been working on climate change issues in my hometown, which is yeah, a small town, 16,000 people for a year and a half, and it, it is really difficult to get beyond the usual suspects. Um, one um, way of doing that would be by using citizens' assemblies, because if you do those properly, then you're required to have you know, genuine representation from all sections. Uh, another angle on this, which I've been pondering and haven't yet tried, is, is to try and work through organizations that are not particularly environmental groups. So, you know, I, I work closely with people like Transition Town, Gridport, for example, um, but if you want to get beyond the usual suspects in the in in this uh, issue, 
then you know I keep coming back to well what about um, faith groups like the churches what about women's institute what about people who don't think they're concerned with climate change but if you actually talk to them about job security housing security etc that there is definitely common ground to be found but I think we're going to need to be quite creative about the channels by which we do get genuine inclusion. And I would think climate change is something that obviously affects everyone so surely that's a really good way of bringing people together most people are on the same page that we need to do something urgently um, so do you think it is, a, it is a good topic to sort of overcome social and, and political divisions? Sadly no. I, I'm, uh, I'm, no yeah. Go on Glenn. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say the same thing, yeah. Alan. <clears throat> um, it, no, I don't think it is. Um, and uh, I mean, you, you know, the, the point about the usual in, Ex, in Exeter, for instance, the loudest voice when you raise the the issue of climate change is the is the um, the Green Party and the cycle lobby. <clears throat> um, and what you tend to uncover when discussing things with those groups is is the points of diversion will are often as much about the mode of implementation as they are about um, what you where you're actually trying to get to and so it basically uncovers some quite deep political points of view which go with the <clears throat> so so when so when you kind of start with the issue of climate change actually what you uncover are people's deeply held political differences and actually um, being able to, so this is one issue, and so you can create quite a lot of confrontation and anger, um, which is not necessarily about the topic you're trying to cover, but it's about something that's been going on a very long time between these two groups of people. But the other thing is that amongst the people who don't turn up to these conversations, which are often, you know, like the, the, the kind of the, 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 uh, the 98% of the population do not take part in these kinds of conversations because it's very hard to, to reach them. It's actually very hard to, to get very representative groups of people. And within those groups, you have quite a lot of cynicism because if you were to have a, um, a, a really um, ambitious plan, which they were at the centre of, this is a point I kind of alluded to earlier, they would be cynical that it would actually be delivered. And so if you, really, if you are going to have those kinds of conversations and awake people's positivity around that kind of future, you must deliver as well. Because if you don't, what you're doing is you're adding another layer of, of cynicism about why should I even bother to engage in these conversations? So there's a really complicated interplay between awakening those groups of people, breaking down their barriers. But then if you, if you get something agreed with them, you've got to do it. Because otherwise you lose any kind of authenticity of voice and, and it's down to somebody else. Mm, thank, thanks, Glenn. Um, I've got a question um, here from Lara. So we're going to go back to the, the co-housing that we were talking about, Alan. So perhaps you can take this one. Um, how can we encourage existing communities to exist in this way, especially in certain instances? Streets may not know one another too well or appreciate others who, they live, who live in the same area. I'll give you an example of um, a, a colleague that I work with who lived um, in northeast London in a, a long street where nobody knew each other. And she and a couple of friends thought, actually, let's try something. So they rented a, a, a local church hall. They put a postcard through everybody's door and said, 
come and meet your neighbours. And, and more than half of the street came to that one afternoon. And suddenly, from a street where hardly anybody talked to each other, suddenly people started to speak. So I think it, the, the first thing is just to take the initiative. Um, the second is that most co-housing um, communities do have open afternoons, they have workshops and so on. So I, I think it's a bit back to Harry's point about a positive vision. I mean, the great thing about co-housing, you, you, you go to a co-housing community and, and you can see physically for yourself that it's a really good quality of life that is low impact and actually low cost as well. So I would say the first thing is, is just have the courage to start to gather your community together. And the second thing is offer them a positive vision of how their community could be stronger. Um, and and as, as Glenn and I are both saying, I, I really wouldn't start with responses to climate change because sadly, most people can't cope with that. I'd start with you know, quality of life, saving costs, mutual support, and then maybe in small brackets again say, and, and by the way, this is also about responding to climate change. But there's, there's a big issue that most people just find climate change too overwhelming so that you have to find more basic issues that people are happy to come together on. Yeah, that's a really interesting and, and useful takeaway. Thank you, Alan. Um, I've got a question, um, and again, I'll open it up to all of you. Um, do you think um, at national government level, uh, enough is being done on these longer term adaptation strategies that we've spoken about, or is emergency planning still um, kind of a bigger priority? Yeah, I, I can, I'll come in on this. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think they are. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> to be quite straightforward about it, I don't, I don't think any of the last sort of 20 years of government have really taken seriously the level of climate risk. Um, every now and again, we're just seeing it in relation to flood adaptation. There's a massive increase in spending for flood defences and adaptation that Rishi Sunak's just recently announced. Um, but this is, again, ignoring the fact that there's an adaptation gap of several years of differing. Um, and I think a big problem we have, at least in the UK, is actually like the way in which the idea of resilience is being mobilised by governments and businesses is actually quite nasty. And we have to kind of pull back and reclaim that word if we're even going to actually continue to use it. I think it's really serious. Um, to give the example of flooding, what we're actually seeing is when cuts to flood defences were made in the 2010s, we saw the rise of flood re and seeing insurance as the crucial requirement for flooding and property flood resilience. What that does is it's actually taking the responsibility to stop people from being flooded away from the state who were previously actually maintaining flood defense networks and pushing it onto individual households. So people are being, they're having their adaptation responsibility pushed onto them and that exacerbates social vulnerabilities. What you'll see then is people who live in wealthy homes, who have all the insurance, who have lawyers who can speed up the insurance process, recover quickly from floods. We see people who live in social housing who are renters really struggle with adaptation. So that's that's my big worry. The UK is not basically spending enough both domestically and globally to fill adaptation gaps, but there's this wider process, which is this individualizing of adaptation which is actually being a blanket to cover the fact that not enough is being done by the state. Um, Can I add something? Yeah, go to that. that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so to go, to go um, one step further with Harry's example, um, the, uh, a lot of uh, flooding is the result of two things. It's a result of um, increased flooding is a result of increased rainfall, which we can't, can't affect. But it's also a result of 
um, uh, a drainage of farmland combined with um, farmland impaction, which is something we can control. Um, but that sits within the auspices of DEFRA rather than, you know, uh, the, well, um, under the Environment Agency. And one thing that our government is not very good at in times of crisis is for these different departments to cooperate with each other. So even if, as at a kind of an, a national level, we say, okay, now everything needs to be focused on, um, on climate resilience, the reason it ends up in the hands of individuals is, uh, is that one of the reasons is actually because these departments find it incredibly hard to cooperate with each other. And that's something that's been, been true for you know, hundreds of years. So if we're going to stop doing that, one of the things that we need to do is to find ways to um, improve the cooperation between the Whitehall departments, because these systems interact with each other. Um, and that's a, that's a knotty problem. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. And we're going to bounce back a second, because I've got a question um, on, on education um, from someone, anonymous attendee. Um, and that is, should we put projects in place from early years where they experience the value of nature in a positive way, e.g. trips to the beach, spending time in the forest, especially in the inner city schools? So will this help in the long run? Well, I, I've been involved in running a woodland education centre called Hazel Hill Wood for, for 30 years. And a lot of our programmes are with kids, both you know, local kids, but also um, residential groups of kids from London. I think contact with nature is absolutely invaluable. And, and I guess it's one of the things that does give me hope in terms of the whole response to the climate crisis is, is the more that people can feel a sort of sense of affinity with, with nature and with the damage that is happening to nature, that the more hope I would have that we're going to see a stronger level of popular support for political action. So to be frank, one of the reasons I think that the political action as Harry said, is, is really nowhere near as wholehearted as it needs to be, is because it's not being sufficiently driven by public concern. But I certainly agree with the questioner that, that yeah, contact with nature for kids on, you know, from an early age is going to be invaluable in their own personal resilience, but also in their, their understanding of the climate crisis. And perhaps not just not just children, not just young people, older people reconnecting with nature, and that will get them also... Uh, kind of on board and a little bit more passionate um, and, and caring. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, so I'm going to ask one final question to each of you, if you each um, sort of try and keep your answer reasonably short. Um, but I think it'll be a good way to, to sort of wrap up the conversation. And that is, what are your hopes for the next 20 years in terms of implementing an effective climate resilience strategy in the UK? I can, yeah, I can come in. <laughs> Thanks, um, <all> right. <laughs> uh, I think that, yeah, my hope is that as soon as possible, we actually attempt to fill the global and domestic adaptation gaps in terms of just boots on the ground funding resources. I think if we're not filling those gaps, what are we doing? Um, and I think that's, it's important that we think about ways of doing that that are actually led by the communities rather than imposed by the government and by businesses and other similar sort of pro processes that occur in, particularly in the aftermath of natural disasters. Um, a community-centred, fully-funded adaptation would be amazing. Um, and I hope it would do so in ways that centre like the working class and the most vulnerable in at-risk areas. And the, the other big hope I'd have is that we do so in a way that actually creates good jobs and housing and actually thinks not just how do we deal with this particular climate impact, but 
how is what is the best way we want to live and and how do we engage with the wider issues of, of what we want our society to look at like in the 100 years or the 200 years as we sort of hopefully are managing climate impacts right i i would hope that we are able over the next 20 years to find a way of thinking about and communicating with each other what we really think a good life is um and to disconnect that from consumption uh, reconnect it in some way with production um and use that as a way of really reconnecting our local communities so that they're able to respond to the challenges of climate but also be much more focused really on all of us having enjoyable and profoundly good lives yeah i, I really share what both harry and glenn have said uh, i guess what i'd add to that is my my major hope would be that the, the mainstream body of people in each community gets much more actively involved in climate issues and i think that'll probably be a multi-stage process as i've said because they they aren't ready to do that directly at the moment but i think that if the the majority of people in communities get involved not just the active minority then suddenly you would start to see much more mutual support much more capacity for positive action in the communities but you'd also see much more um, informed demand on government to move in the right direction in a way which i i i don't think they are as yet um and the last thing i say is i'm i'm very um, encouraged to hear how much the term adaptation has been used in this discussion and I think that the other crucial thing is that we do really start to focus a lot more on adaptation alongside what we're doing to mitigate climate change. Thanks Alan. Um, so uh, I think we're going to wrap up there so thank you so much um, for joining us today um, and thanks to the audience uh, for getting involved this morning. Um, if you're interested in um, climate change, you are um, listening to this webinar and the work of Cumberland Lodge, I'd urge you to have a look on our website and um, our Climate Futures Youth Perspectives and Projects. Um, there's lots of resources on there, including blogs and, and um, podcasts. And also, um, if you follow the hashtag CLClimateFutures, um, you can look out for our report, which we'll be launching uh, later this year ahead of COP26. Um, and also do, do get in touch with us if you'd like to be involved uh, in this, this Climate Futures Youth Perspectives um, project. Um, also, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. So our dialogue and debate webinars take place generally at 11am um, on the first Wednesday of the month. and We address different topics um, each month, so it would be great if you could, could join us again. Next month, the topic is social cohesion post-lockdown, and we'll be exploring the ideas and opportunities for supporting social cohesion as, as lockdown uh, restrictions are lifted in, in the UK, looking at things like social anxiety um, and how communities can respond to, to help that. Um, before I say goodbye, I'd also like to highlight that, like all charities, Common Lodge is facing difficult times um, because of the pandemic. So if you have enjoyed today's webinar and would like to support our work, please consider making a, a small donation and you can do so uh, via our Just Giving page and, and the link to that will come up um, immediately after the webinar. Um, so before, before we say goodbye, I'd just like to thanks once again to, to Alan, um, Harry and Glenn um, for, for your insights and views today. It's been uh, really interesting to speak, to speak with you all. Thank you.